So I debated this week, uh, knowing that Disciple Now was coming and that we were just going to have this one service here together. Uh, and then I'm uh, going to be with the other churches at 11, uh, listening to somebody else bring the word. Uh, I debated whether or not to keep going with Revelation or uh, wait and let everybody else hear it. But I decided you guys deserve to keep going. We deserve to keep going Revelation. And uh, if anybody else wants to hear it, uh, that's why we have it online, so they can listen to it there. Um, but uh, pressing along, um, and, and just to be honest, I am really anxious in a good way, in a good way, not going to skip anything, but anxious in a good way to get to the end. I don't know about any of you. Um, I, I'm just, uh, not that I want to be done with this, but the celebration that comes at the end uh, and that is coming. And let me give you a, a bit of a commercial, I guess, if you will, for the next couple of weeks. Um, in all my study of Revelation, the chapters that have fascinated me the most are the ones that are coming, uh, 17 through 20. Uh, and, and, and I think that's really where we begin to see the, 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 the idea of this being a book of an apocalypse, which if you remember way back when we first started talking about this, uh, apocalypse in the Greek it just means a revealing, a great revealing. Uh, we've already seen a great thing, a, a great amount of things revealed to us, but in 17 through 20, really 17 and 18, uh, we're going to see something revealed to all of us that hasn't shown up yet. We're going to start, start talking about this character Babylon. It's already come up a little bit, um, and uh, the, the way that this, this city, the way that this w worldview kind of has sway. Anyway, I don't want to get into it too much, but um, I believe that in, in all the things that we get caught up on in Revelation, uh, sometimes we miss the importance of what happens in the next several chapters because we're just thinking about battles and dragons and devils and demons and, uh, and, and judgments and all those things, um, and we miss what I think is really at the heart of it, which is, in, like I said, in the next several chapters. So in chapter 16, we are obviously continuing from where we left off last week uh, in the back half of chapter 15 uh, as we start thinking about this final set of judgments. Uh, there have been three sets of judgments, or there are three sets of judgments that run throughout uh, the book of Revelation. Uh, the seven seals come to us earliest, uh, and then we have uh, the seven trumpets uh, being the second set, and now we have the seven bowls of God's wrath that are about to be poured out over all the earth. Have you ever wondered, before we jump into that, why we are sometimes nicer to the stranger than we are to the people that we love the most in the world? You ever wondered that? Have you ever, and surely none of you have ever fallen into this trap, but you've been around, uh, maybe not a stranger, but an acquaintance, a friend, somebody that you're friendly with, or maybe you were out with other people in a, in a couple or as a family, uh, and you have these nice, you know, light conversations with people, uh, you're super kind, you know, you act like everything's fine, uh, and then the moment that you get in the car to go home with your family, you turn into a terrible person. Maybe, maybe again, I'm the only one who's ever expressed that, have been that, but that way before, uh, where suddenly all the frustration that you've been carrying around with you the entire day, but you were afraid to let out in front of a group of strangers or acquaintances, you dump all over your family. Um, some of that is, and, and we were told this from an early age with our children at home, uh, is that some of that is a blessing because, uh, like, if your children act out at home, but they're okay for the most part in society, that means that they feel safe at home. They feel safer with you. Uh, you know, they feel like they can test the boundaries a little more with you. Now, obviously, you need to set those boundaries and have consequences and all those things. But there is that, that feeling of safety with the people that we are around. Um, to where maybe we are willing to be a little bit more ourselves and, and be a little bit more honest about our frustrations, about uh, our, our aggravations. But there are times when it takes on a completely different level. 
Maybe some of you have even experienced this where you're fine all day at work, even though you're stressed out beyond belief, but you're kind to everybody because you have to be at work because you like your job and you want to keep it or you like your customers and you want to keep them. But then when you come home, all the stress and worry of work is suddenly taken out on your family, either through one of the famous male ways of handling this is to completely isolate ourselves, right? Just not to talk to anybody, not to deal with anybody. I just want to watch the TV, be alone, prop my feet up, drink some coffee uh, and let the day go by. Or maybe it comes out in a much more uh, antagonistic in your face kind of sense where it's, it's, it's complaining and, and and picking about every little thing uh, that somebody else is doing, and it's not having any any real, like, actual conversations about the things that bother you. It's really just this kind of picking, antagonizing kind of thing that happens. So why is that the case? Is it just because we're safer, or is it because we maybe sometimes take those relationships for granted? Maybe sometimes we don't realize how important those are and how fragile they might be if we continue to inject negativity, continue to inject toxicity into those relationships. And really, it's easy to pretend like everything is fine when things are okay, even in this relationship, any relationship. When things are, you know, you're just going about your day and you're just kind of having normal day after normal day or maybe a few wins along the way, it's easy to pretend like everything is fine. But when things get difficult... When things get tough, when adversity shows its face in whatever way it might be, whether that is some sort of discord or disagreement in a relationship, whether that's something from the outside like a sickness or a career issue or uh, an issue with the children coming into a relationship, that suddenly becomes less easy to pretend like everything's okay, less easy to remain unbothered, less easy to remain who we think ourselves to be. Maybe you've heard someone who lost their temper for a moment, who acted out in a way and and raised their voice to the degree that they don't don't normally do or, or did something that was a little bit out of the ordinary. Maybe you've heard them say before, oh, I'm sorry, I just wasn't myself in that moment. I just lost myself for a second. What if, though, it is in the moments of adversity when our true self is the most visible? What if it is moments of adversity that clear away some of the niceties of our cultural pretense so that we might see ourselves for who we really are? Think a little bit about what we see in Scripture and other places as well as here in Revelation 16 has a word to say about adversity, particularly through God's judgment in Revelation 16, and how we as a people respond to that adversity. Because I believe that adversity reveals the truth about us. It's not a comfortable reality, but I do believe it is certainly true to life that adversity reveals the truth about us. You've probably learned a lot about yourselves in moments of adversity. You've likely learned a lot about people that are close to you in moments of adversity. How we handle adversity says a lot about who we are. And as Christians, it says a lot about the kind of faith that we have in Christ to handle those moments of adversity. So let's pray together before we jump in and read Revelation 16. We'll read the whole chapter, by the way. Father, once again, we come to you thankful. Thankful for um, the heat and power and all the things that we often take for granted, but um, I'm sure we were a little more anxious about after last year. Uh, as we went through this uh, last current storm the last few days. Uh, God, we thank you for uh, just uh, your constant protection. Uh, we thank you that there wasn't any, uh, in this area anyway, any, any major damage or anything like that. God, I just pray that uh, 
God, you would help us to look to you for, for all things uh, and, and see you in the good of everything around us, the way that you're constantly ministering to us and constantly, uh, God, just surrounding us with your presence and your will and leading us. God, may we be mindful that you are in everything around us. God, we uh, pray for our students as they are beginning their day in the Sapple now. God, I pray that this would be a strong finish for them. Uh, God, that if there are any that you are, uh, God, calling to yourself and salvation, God, that they would respond, that their leaders would be on point and be ready to lead them in the right direction. But God, I pray for us now as we open your word and seek to gain truth. God, I pray that you would remove distraction from us, and God, that you would give us the eyes to see and focus upon what it is exactly you want us to see and read and apply to our lives in a way that might bring transformation. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Revelation chapter 16, we will read all 21 verses. Then I heard a loud voice from heaven, excuse me, from the temple, telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out its bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord, God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the world of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hell, because the plague was so severe. Thank you. The final judgment is coming. As these 
seven bowls of wrath, the third set of seven plagues come into fruition. Bowl one, we'll just jump right into it. Bowl one, an angel pours out, and, and upon those who have the mark of the beast, there are painful sores. You'll see in many of these bowls of wrath that are poured out that they recall us, relate us back, are reminiscent of uh, plagues that happened during, Egypt, uh, during Israel's delivery from Egypt. These are plagues that God himself performed against Egypt. And of course, this one reminds us of the sixth plague of Egypt, the plague of boils. This also calls Job to mind. Job, who was inflicted with painful sores as an act of God's judgment, even though he was a righteous man. I want you to put that one in the back of your head. We're going to recall it later. I do believe it's important. I believe it is, uh, it's one of the reasons why this is the first one that John listed or the first one that God uh, allowed to happen uh, because it's not exactly equal with the plagues. We're not starting with the first plague right off the bat. The first plague uh, in, the, in, in the Egyptian narrative and the Exodus narrative is the plague of the, the, the waters turning into blood. But here we're starting with the sixth plague for a reason um, that I believe is important. So again, stick that relationship to Job uh, in your mind, and we'll get back to it when we go through these bowls. Bowls two and three both relate to the first plague of Egypt, uh, the waters being turned into blood. Uh, with bowl two, it's the waters of the sea. Uh, with bowl three, it's fresh water, waters of streams, waters of, uh, uh, of springs. Um, and and with these with these plagues, not only do we see the the water turn into blood, um, but we're given the, the, the ultimate consequence of that as well, uh, that everything that is within the waters uh, dies. So you can imagine uh, just the destruction, the utter destruction, uh, total devastation. Uh, and whereas before with some other plagues that might sound familiar back earlier in the book of Revelation, uh, we're not talking about a third of the waters at this point. We're talking about all of them. Uh, we have moved from partial judgment to complete judgment. This is God's final word of judgment uh, that he is seeking to pronounce against the world that is being disobedient to him. Uh, and so it's, it, you can imagine, I hate the smell of one dead fish uh, uh, or anything from the ocean. You know what I'm talking about. Everybody acts like the beach has this wonderful smell. I think it kind of has a weird smell sometimes, uh, at certain times of the, of the year, right? It just, uh, the, the, the creatures that are in it, the dampness, the water, uh, it's just something a little gross about it, even though I enjoy being out on the beach. Now imagine that on steroids, uh, where every living thing in the ocean and in the streams is dead. This is an absolutely devastating reality that we're talking about. And this kind of connects us back to last week because immediately after Bulls 2 and 3, we're given a word of worship. Um, and I won't beat that horse anymore. I think we dealt with it plenty last week in chapter 15. Uh, but about how God's judgment is, a, uh, is an opportunity to worship God for his goodness and how he's taking out his wrath against sin and evil once and for all. They're noting the justice of God, uh, even kind of the... the um, in, in the Roman world, they would have called it the lex talionis, the rule of retaliation, uh, and that it belongs to God alone. Christians would believe, uh, and God alone is seeing as, as being the one who's finally bringing vengeance as the, the, the cry is lifted uh, you know, to God as an act of worship. Thank you, Lord, for they spilled the blood of the saints, and now they are made to drink blood. That doesn't seem like a one-to-one, -one, but you get the idea of why justice is seen in that metaphor. Before is not reminiscent of any of the plagues of Egypt. It kind of stands on its own as being the sun giving, given extra power, if you will, to scorch and burn. Has anybody ever had a really severe sunburn in the house? No? 
okay, a few of you, a few of you are being honest now, had a really severe sunburn. I think the, the most severe one that I've ever had is probably in my late 20s, early 30s, when I didn't really understand that I had gone bald on the top of my head, uh, and I didn't take any protection. I didn't wear a hat. I didn't put anything on the top of my head. Uh, and and that, that part of your body, if you leave it open, it burns really, really, really fast. I should have known because my dad was bald from an early age too, uh, and I can remember him coming home from work, uh, and he would wear hats with holes in them, uh, and there would be spots, you know, where the sun had gotten through uh, and, and left sunburns on his head. Should have now, if, you know, if, if you ever, if we ever go to the lake together or whatever, you're going to see me, you know, squeeze out the sunscreen and rub it in my hair like it's shampoo. Rub it in my hair, haha, <laughs> on top of my head like it's shampoo uh, to try to keep the sun away. Sunburns are painful, are they not? You know, it's one of those things you don't want. You don't want anybody to touch it. You don't want to put anything on it. Uh, any kind of rough texture, uh, any, you know, it just feels like you're you're taking steel wool and rubbing it over your skin. Uh, it is not a pleasant sensation. Uh, and then if it's a really bad sunburn, not only do you have to deal with like the sensitivity and the unpleasant sensation when it's touched, you have to deal with literally the throbbing heat that comes off of it. Like you feel like you're you're literally radiating heat, and you might be to some degree uh, to the world around you and to the air around you. Not even where you just touch it, you feel heat. You can like hover your hand over your skin and you can feel the heat coming off of it. Um, and that's why pe- people, dermatologists in particular, tell us to be extra careful uh, because they know that it does lasting damage to the skin and it can be one of the causes of skin cancer and all that. So there's your PSA uh, for today. Uh, a little bit of a public service announcement for you. You all know that already uh, because we know how dangerous the sun can be because the ultraviolet rays get through. Here's something I didn't know until just recently. Um, I think, if I'm remembering this correctly, our ozone layer cancels out like 99% of the UV rays that come from the sun into the earth. And so what we're dealing with with sunburn is 1% of what UV rays are really capable of. So we don't have any idea how, how truly powerful the sun is uh, and what it would be like to be subject to the fullness of its wrath. Uh, and so what we see in this passage is, is again, just, just a, 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 a terrible reality. A, a, if we're outside of Christ, which we are not, but for those outside of Christ, a frightening reality. When we also see something new set up in this bowl of wrath, kind of a refrain. We see it again in the next one. We see it a little bit in the, in the seventh uh, bowl, but this refrain of they cursed God and they did not repent. Uh, that isn't the words exactly, but if you go back and you read through that again, you see that they, they cursed God for allowing this to happen uh, and they refused to repent of their actions, those who are left on the earth at this point. Bofab relates to the ninth plague of Egypt. Um, in dealing with uh, the darkness, the hours of darkness that were that were cast over Egypt by by Moses or through Moses by God uh, to try to harden or try to change Pharaoh's mind and let the people go, you know that story. Uh, and so we have God once again doing this. Darkness is symbolic of evil all throughout Scripture, symbolic of the absence of God. Uh, this is darkness that is literally driving people mad. Uh, they're gnawing their tongues in anguish. They don't know what to do. It is it is both a a physical thing that's going on in these judgments and a mental, emotional thing uh, that's going on as well as they respond to what God is doing in bowl five and really all of the bowls, and it keeps the refrain going. They curse God as they gnaw their tongues in their mouth. They refuse to repent. 
Then in verse 6, we see things kind of amped up a little bit. This relates us back to the second plague of Egypt a little bit. And then it deals with frogs. That was the second one. Frogs that come from the mouth of the, uh, from the mouths of the beasts, of the two beasts and the dragon. Um, they were unclean, by the way, creatures, supposed, not supposed to be put in the mouth. So it tells us something about the beast and his minions. Um, or excuse me, the dragon and his minion beasts. Uh, but anyway, the, the, the plague itself is the Euphrates River drying up. Uh, strangely enough, if you go back and you look through Scripture, rivers drying up usually were a good thing for the people of God, or bodies of water, especially related to the Exodus story, since we're already in the Exodus story, bringing that up over and over again. Uh, when God dried the Red Sea before Israel so that they could flee from the Egyptians and then brought the waters back on the Egyptians as they pursued them in the Red Sea, that was seen as an act of deliverance from God. It's one of the great things that Israelites, uh, true like Orthodox Jews still alive today, celebrate when they think about the Passover is God allowing them to pass through the Red Sea and the story of the Exodus, the beauty of that escape that God provided. Likewise, we see a little bit later in Joshua when the river Jordan itself is dried up so that they might carry the Ark of the Covenant into the Promised Land, uh, being another episode of, of that being seen as a good thing. Uh, and then later on, we get uh, not necessarily rivers drying up, uh, but we get the idea of an army invading from the east of a great city as kind of being a good thing. And, and go with me on this one. Uh, when, the Egyptian, or when the Israelites were in Babylonian captivity, uh, there seems to be a sense of hopelessness. Nebuchadnezzar and the others like him uh, from the Babylonian empire were ruthless uh, and, and didn't want to have anything good to do with any of the Jews. Uh, and things changed. If you can remember the history of the Old Testament, things changed when another power came in and took control. When the Persian empire came in and took over, that's when King Cyrus was around. And King Cyrus was the one who decreed that some of the Jews could go back to their homeland and start rebuilding. Cyrus was seen as a hero, a heroic figure by many Jews in, in that time uh, because he allowed them to return home, to go back to the promised land, to finally get out of captivity. And that Persian invasion of Babylonian empire came from the east, modern day like Iran. Uh, it's where all of that would come from. Uh, and if you bring that forward into John's day, uh, and we've already talked about Rome a little bit, Rome kind of being the power that he would be talking about, even the number 666 pointing us likely to the Caesar of Rome and, and all that that represents throughout time, but Rome is the particular person, or particular group, particular city, particular power, authority that he's noticing at the time as being anti-God or anti-Christian. One thing that Rome was always afraid of was that armies would invade from the east, even though it seemed like they were protected from that direction. Uh, they were afraid of the Parthians in particular, who were, were basically just from the same area as the Persians, who would come and attack them. There was uh, like hundreds of years of war with the Parthians. Uh, and, and, and so we kind of get this idea that as the, the Euphrates dries up from the east, and there's a, a time for a great battle prepared, that we're seeing like the, the beginning hints of the, the final battle uh, that would, between good and evil that will finally set all things right. Um, but we're also seeing how Rome plays into that picture and that it itself will be destroyed. And not Rome in the sense of the ancient city Rome. We know that that city was destroyed. But in all that Rome represents, what John is about to start talking about is Babylon. He's about to completely 
ditch the Roman metaphor and use the metaphor of Babylon. But when he speaks about Babylon, in some ways, he's speaking about Rome, speaking about the system of the world. And so he says that God is basically preparing a way for this battle to happen and for the systems of the world that are anti-Christian to be brought down to be destroyed, for God's judgment to be carried out against them. And we're going to see that in chapter 17 and 18, but we see the beginnings here at the end of chapter 16. And it sets up again this final battle, the dragon versus God, Armageddon. That's where it's supposed to happen. Um, I've actually had the opportunity to, a few of us in this room have, uh, be at the place called Megiddo in Israel. Uh, where there have been many battles throughout ancient history. Uh, and, and whether it's going to be the literal place that it happens, there's a valley of Jezreel uh, that you would look out on that many battles happen in that area. And whether, this is not, whether or not this is the actual place where this battle is going to go down, I think it's kind of beside the point. Uh, the main point is, is that Israel has a really good record in that area. Uh, if you go back and you look and you find battles throughout Scripture, Israel is victorious uh, when there is a battle in this precise area, in the Megiddo area or in the Valley of Jezreel. And so it, it begins to speak to us about the inevitability of Israel's, of God's people's victory in the coming battle. And then there is this, in my translation, in my ESV, it is literally a parenthetical phrase, uh, verse 15. And it makes sense that it's parenthetical because it comes out of nowhere. And I also have a red-letter version of the Bible, and it's in red letters. So we attribute these words to Jesus, at least the Bible translators do. And it, it is something indeed Jesus would say. As in the middle of all this description, talking about the, the final judgments, the final battle that's coming, we're given this reminder. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. It is a reminder that this could happen at any time. This battle is not something that we should think there's going to have to be this big buildup. This could be much more metaphorical than, we're, than even a literal battle that we might be thinking of. And it could happen at literally any moment. We must always be ready for this final judgment, for this final battle between good and evil and the judgment that will come after. We must always be prepared. It is a good reminder in the midst of this story being told. A battle is coming. But at least in our reading of the book of Revelation, not quite yet. So we still have the seventh bowl to pour out here in chapter 16. And the seventh bowl is actually thrown out into the air. And it relates us in a little way to the seventh plague of Egypt. And speaking about hell towards the end, great hellstones from heaven towards the end of the description of this bowl. But it's also just complete chaos. I've already used that word before, but I'm talking complete, utter destruction. There's an earthquake like there's never been before. The earth is literally swallowed up. Mountains and islands fade away. The earth is total chaos, total destruction. This is the end, as it says, as the great voice proclaims, that everything that is in its current fashion will one day be destroyed, will one day come to an end. When we get into Revelation 21 and 22, we see God bring a new heaven and a new earth down because this old earth is destroyed. Destroyed because God has carried out his wrath against sin and evil that has so permeated everything within our fallen world. So let's speak as to why this matters. 
some words of application before we leave this morning. Why does John feel the need, or why does God, as he's orchestrating all of this, feel the need to refer consistently to the Exodus story? Well, we've seen this already. We've seen this, some of the same illusions in the seven trumpets. Uh, we've seen it in recent chapters as well, this uh, continual alluding to the Exodus story. The Exodus story is, is, is really the central event of the Old Testament, uh, when God would deliver his people from Egyptian oppression. And what we see happening in, in Revelation is God, again, through his judgment and through his might, through his wrath, like he did with the plagues, carrying out his judgment against the world so that the way might be made for his people to escape this evil, to be taken out of oppression and into the promised land. But this time we're not talking about an actual land. We're not talking about getting together and wandering through the wilderness and going to Canaan eventually. We're talking about the promised land is in eternity, is in Zion, fully realized in heaven, about which we're going to have a bunch of descriptions in 21 and 22 as we marvel over the heaven that is to come. Can you tell I'm ready to get there? I'm ready to get there. But as we wait for that, uh, we get to see, again, God's final judgment carried out. And so the Exodus story makes sense because we see God, again, acting out judgment, but doing it on behalf of his people, doing it for the love that he has for those whom he has called according to his good and perfect will, for all of those that he wishes to be saved and, and, and to be protected by him. You know the metaphor where Jesus talks about, I wish, uh, you know, I could, I could like a hen, a mother hen gathers her chicks, uh, uh, you know, underneath her, her wings to protect them. And I get that same feeling with the Exodus story. I get that same feeling with, with this story in Revelation that God is seeking to protect us from all that is evil and he must destroy. We talked about this last week, so I won't go here too long, but he must destroy all that is against him in order to protect his people and make them a place for eternity that is good, that is perfect, in which he can dwell with us forever and ever in peace. I think that's why it's important to relate to that Exodus story. But I also told you to stick something in your mind as we were going through on the first bowl, where God pours out painful sores upon those who wear the mark of the beast. And why would he put that one first? That's not the first plague in the plague of Egypt. It's the sixth plague in the plague of Egypt. It doesn't even sit in the center. So why this particular plague being the first one that's poured out in the act of judgment, the final act of judgment? Many scholars that I was reading this week thinks, thinks that John is, is purposely, or God through the story of John, is purposefully re having us recall to our mind the story of Job and how Job was inflicted with painful sores amongst a ton of other afflictions, yes. Uh, a lot of other things went wrong for Job. He had to deal with a lot of issues. But what we see in Job is righteous suffering, right? That Job did not deserve. That was kind of one of the key things throughout the story with Job. And one of the key things he continued to proclaim his innocence in front of his friends, even though they would say, you must have done something, right? You must deserve this for some reason. And you have this whole back and forth for chapters and chapters and chapters and chapters, uh, you know, to the point that you're, you're, real, you're ready to just tell these friends to shut up just like Joel, Job, Job was by the end of all of their different long narratives, telling Job why he was so wrong. Um, and, 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 but yet Job, even though he has his questions and even though he has his frustrations, 
when he's finally met at the end of the book in this long, beautiful, magnificent you know, response from God, um, with God telling him, hey, remember who you are, remember who I am. Were you around when I told the lightning where to go, when I defeated the behemoth and the Leviathan? Like, were you around for those things? Of course, you were not. And so trust me in this. And in the moment, what do we see from Job? We see, even though, again, he didn't do anything to deserve all that he was getting, he repents at the end of the book, right? And he says something that, that I feel in my core often. I spoke of things about which I did not understand. That is one of Job's responses to God. Like, I, I didn't understand you, God. And so, okay, you're right. Like, I, I submit to you. That was Job's response to his adversity. Now, again, it wasn't perfect. He struggled along the way. But his ultimate response to God's act of judgment upon him, a judgment he didn't feel like he deserved, was one of repentance. And then restored relationship at the end of the book. Here in Revelation, we see people who obviously deserve the wrath of God. We're even told that in that pause for worship after the rivers and the seas are turned into blood, the, 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 the altar itself cries out and says, this is what they deserve. The altar meaning the prayers of the saints, the heavenly hosts. This is what they deserve. They have what's coming to them. And yet we see again, as we have already seen, we've highlighted this once before, but as we've already seen, we see once again in three of those seven bowls of wrath that are being poured out that the people curse God. And in two of them, we're told very frankly that they did not repent of their evil works. And so we have Job, a righteous man who suffers, yet repents. And in that moment, we see Job for who he really is, which if you go back to the beginning of Job, is what Satan was trying to tell God would not happen, right? Satan told God, if you would just do this to him, he would curse you. And, and, and not only that, not only did Satan tell God that Job would do that, Job had people in his life telling him to do that. His wonderful wife, who was the only one that was allowed to live through everything that happened, to be there, tell him over and over again, curse God and die. That was his, his, his advice that he was getting from other people. But he stood strong in what he had. He did not curse God. Instead, ultimately, he repented. This righteous man. And yet in Revelation, we have a group of unrighteous people who have turned their back on God, who again feel like they did not deserve the wrath of God, but clearly do, who they are met with the judgment of God, the adversity that comes from the wrath of God. They curse God. They blame him for everything. And they say awful things about him, committing blasphemies against him. They curse God they blame him, and they refuse to repent. They refuse to repent. So lost that they don't know how lost they are. And we see echoes of that in this world anytime we talk about the judgment of God or we talk about the concept of hell. Instead of people being moved to a position of repentance— of a just God who is more just than anything we could ever imagine, we see instead so many in our society, even many within our churches, shaking their fist at that idea and being like, God, how could you do this to us? Cursing God, blaspheming and questioning him and refusing to repent. God's judgment, I hope you'll see this throughout scripture. God's judgment 
is always an effort to provoke repentance. Even the way that he did it in Revelation. It's not until these last set of seven that we're getting judgments in their fullness. God started off by inflicting a fourth uh, of things, or a third of things in the first two sessions, first two sets with the, with the seals and with the trumpets. And even here in, 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 uh, in, in these seven bowls, we're seeing things that bring a lot of pain and a lot of agony, but we're not necessarily seeing things that kill. Uh, these people have the opportunity to once again respond with repentance, to beg God to save them. That's what God's judgment has always been an effort to do. We're told in, in, in Scripture that God disciplines, Hebrews, that God disciplines the one that he loves. That God carries out these acts in order to turn us back to him so that we might understand where sin is leading us and choose him instead. God's judgment, if anything, is him taking his hand off and allowing us to experience the full weight of sin and what it does to destroy us. And it's always given in an effort to provoke repentance. And yet here in Revelation, we're told that in the end, when the final judgments come, there will at least be some that no matter how obvious it is, will still fail to repent and will still blame God for everything that's wrong in the world. Those in Revelation 16 suffer just rewards, and yet they curse God. Adversity reveals the truth about us. Adversity revealed the truth about Job. Satan was wrong. Job stayed strong. His faith was stronger than any suffering that he endured. It's not the case with this grand amount of people that we're talking about here in Revelation 16. And for you and I, beyond what we've been talking about, like how we need to be urgent with the gospel message, how we should worship God even in the midst of judgment because it is God carrying out all of, all of the, the, the guilt and sin of the world so that we might not have to deal with it. One other thing we, we might need to ask ourselves as we read through these words is, what would adversity reveal about me? What has adversity revealed about me? Now, I'm not saying that every single thing that's adversity that's happened to you is the like literal hand of God doing that. But what I will suggest to you is that God has allowed every adversity that's come upon you to come upon you, that it happened under his purview. It happened under his watch. And while God might not have like definitively said this happens, caused it in that way, he allowed it to happen and he can do something through that adversity. God has a plan to do something in you and those around you through that adversity. You've seen people whom God has used on the other side of adversity or even in the midst of adversity and how their voice is magnified and their witness seems larger than those of us who just have, are just going through life normally. What does adversity reveal about you? And to me, it comes back to a basic understanding of the gospel. And that is that a statement that we say a lot that's just not true. God will never give us more than we can handle. Right? The truth of the reality is you can't handle sin. You can't handle life as it is on your own. You are in need of a Savior. We are born unable to handle the life that is before us without the grace of Jesus Christ. God will never give us anything that he can't handle. 
but only he can handle the things that we are given. With that understanding of the gospel that it is only through God that I'm able to do anything, I realize that when adversity comes my direction, it's not going to be me and my strength gritting my teeth. I'm going to get through this. Right? It's not going to be me about reading, reading books about uh, you know, how to have the best willpower or how to, how to positively think your way through anything in life or uh, how to have self-affirming statements. All of those things are good. Don't get me wrong. But how to, how to conquer life with those simple tools and simple tips. No, the only way the life ahead of us will be conquered is through the person of Jesus, his sacrifice, and his presence with us on a daily basis. And so really when I say adversity reveals the truth about us, adversity reveals the truth about our faith in Christ. Adversity reveals the truth about how much we really believe the things we say that we believe. How much we really believe the Bible that we say we read every day. Do we really believe that God is still good despite what's going on around us? Do we really believe that God is still able despite all the bad news we've gotten do we really believe that God can deliver in the midst of oppression? And if we do, when adversity comes, we're not going to handle it perfectly because we're human. Job didn't either. Don't get that mindset. The way you go through Job, there's times when he's whining. He is. But in the end of the day, he, he maintained his faith in God, and he repented of ever questioning God, and God rewarded him for it. Adversity reveals the truth about us. It reveals the truth about our faith in Christ. And if you are in Christ, here's the hope for you this morning. If you are in Christ, there is no adversity that can overcome you. There is no one left to condemn you. There is no evil too great for you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. There is no weapon formed against you that will ever prosper. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. No adversity can destroy us. And hopefully when adversity comes your way, it reveals that truth about you. And it reveals to a world watching around you the truth that Jesus is bigger than that adversity. During our time of invitation this morning, I want you just to think about those two thoughts. Adversity reveals the truth about us. What will adversity reveal about me? Take that question to God in this moment, as well as beyond this moment. If you need to pray about that or anything else, I'll be down here to do that with you. This morning, I'll stand right here in front of our Lord's Supper table. You can come down and pray. I'll be around after the service, too, if you'd like to pray together then. The altar will be open, meaning you can come and kneel at the steps and pray there if you would like. Uh, you're always welcome to pray right where you are or pray with someone around you. Um, but let's stand together. I'm going to pray. Andrew's just going to lead us in one last song. Uh, and as he and Susan do so, would you move in whatever way God is calling? Father, once again, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for your love for us. God, we even thank you for your judgment. God, we thank you for being perfect and for setting everything right. For preserving us in eternity free from sin and death and all that is evil and negative. And yet, God, we still in our hearts remain uneasy about all that has to happen before that. Uneasy for our sisters and brothers in the world who don't know you. Uneasy maybe even for ourselves. 
and the adversity that we know might be ahead of us. God, I pray that you would help us deal with those questions this morning. God, that you would remind us that there is no adversity too big for you. And God, that you would help us to lean not on our own strength, but on you. So that when adversity comes, we might be revealed as children of your son, Jesus Christ. May that be who we are. In Jesus' name, amen.